0: In this episode of the Leader Smith Podcast, I want to talk about one of the most fundamental, profound, most important things necessary to leadership. That's making good choices. Making choices, sticking by your choices, seeing it through. And I'm going to illustrate it through the life of an obscure American founding father. It's going to be a great episode. Stay right where you are. In a world of incompetent bosses. Micromanagers and petty tyrants. One management professor claims that he can help you become the kind of leader that you would want to follow. You are listening to The Leader Smith. Now, here is your host, Darren Gertis. So we're all familiar with the big name founding fathers, folks like Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton and George Washington and on and on. Basically, the guys that are on our money, we know a lot about. But there are other folks that we need to understand and, and know things about their lives because they can teach us important lessons about important topics, such as the power of making good choices and sticking by them. That's what we're going to talk about today. So my first, the first thing that I want to start with is this. The, there's a leadership lesson here, and that is this. Choices matter. The choices that you make matter. You need to think in terms of every choice that you make leading you either toward your goal or away from your goal. And it's amazing how very small, very simple choices can make a big difference in how you actually function. So Here, I'm going to talk about uh, a very obscure, very not well-known founding father. His name was General William Moultrie. Now, I live not very far from where General William Moultrie lived in South Carolina. Um, And when I moved to South Carolina, I promised myself I'd go see the historical sites because when I lived in central Virginia, Uh, I was only about 20 minutes from Appomattox. I lived there for 10 years and I was 20 minutes from Appomattox and never actually got there. So I was like, no, I'm going to go see these kinds of sites. So recently uh, I went down to see Fort Sullivan and Fort Sullivan has this really interesting revolutionary war history. And let me talk about that for just a little bit. So it's about So I teach at Charleston Southern University, and it's about 25 miles from CSU or from my house to Fort Sullivan, which is now named Fort Moultrie in General Moultrie's honor. At the time, General Moultrie was only Colonel Moultrie, but he got promotions as he proved himself over time. Okay, now Fort Moultrie was an active fort from the Revolutionary War all the way through World War II, uh, and it was—it's now a national historical park. And so I got to go walk around and see things, and, and it's really interesting when you go there—you see it in phases of what what it was at different epics, like during the revolution, during, there's very little from the revolution, but civil war cannon, uh, World War II, the big guns that, you know, just in case there were subs off the coast, that kind of thing. Now, when you're there, you'll notice, as you'll notice in most of South Carolina, in uh, the Charleston area, a lot of these palm looking trees, they're not actually palm trees, they're called palmetto trees. And there's a big difference between the palm and the palmetto. uh, And we'll talk about that in just a little bit. But if you see this this palmetto tree, South Carolinians love the palmetto tree like they're, they're always wearing, you know, the little palmetto tree on shirts or putting it on on, uh, you know, stickers or it's it's on a, the state flag. And there's a reason that it's on the state flag. Uh, it's on our license plates. Uh, it, it's everywhere. So there's a reason. So if you look at the South Carolina state flag, what you'll see is this palmetto tree. And then you'll see in the corner what looks like a, a crescent moon, and it's either a crescent moon or it's something called a gorget. A gorget was this um, metal piece of armor that would cover the neck. And um, like if you were, uh, you know, a, a knight wearing a suit of armor, one of your vulnerable places is your neck. And so this this uh, circular, like crescent moon-looking shape would cover your neck, so you couldn't be stabbed in the neck. Um, now, if you go to the state house and take the state house tour in Columbia, they will tell you that the crescent moon on the flag is actually a gorget, not a moon. Um, there's a, a historical debate about what it is: whether it's a moon, whether it's a gorget, whether it's somebody's hat. There's a you know some somewhere some historian found somebody that said it looked like a hat. Okay, but what's interesting is it points back to the original flag that Moultrie used at Fort Sullivan, which was just a blue field with that gorget in a corner, like half moon, gorget, whatever it was that said Liberty in large letters. Now they needed a flag at the time because, you know, to, in order to signal to make sure, you know, people knew that they were still there at the fort, whatever it was, but that was the original flag that was there. And it just, again, a blue field, the gorget, and it said Liberty. Okay. So the palm tree is going to be, the palmetto tree rather, the palmetto tree is going to be added just before uh, the Civil War breaks out as a hearkening back to what happened here at Fort Sullivan. So let's move on and talk about Fort Sullivan and the events here. If you look at Charleston Harbor, um, Charleston is one of the more populous cities in the South. In fact, it's probably like the preemptive port in the south you you don't have a lot of choices down there Um, you could look down into Georgia and Savannah or you could look a little bit up the coast but there's not really great ports in uh, upwards in North Carolina South Carolina until you get into maybe Virginia Beach Norfolk that kind of area but South Carolina Charleston was a thriving it's a boom town during the revolution it would have been one of the big cities New York Philadelphia Boston Charleston right I mean that's that's the class it would have been in. So the British, well, if you wanted to occupy, if if you were the British and it was this uh, Revolutionary War just heating up, you want to occupy major cities as they did like New York and like Boston, where most of the action was. They came to Charleston, too, very early on, but we don't hear anything about it. And the reason we don't hear anything about it is a story that I'm going to tell. So there is uh in Charleston harbor Charleston you have to go like in in the inlet a little bit to get to Charleston and there are these outer islands right around it like uh Sullivan's Island and Sullivan's Island at the peak of Sullivan's Island at the very point just before you get into uh Charleston there was the fort and the fort is going to um Fort Sullivan at the time, which, again, later Fort Moultrie, is going to be fairly well armed in order to shoot anything coming into the mouth of the harbor. Okay, so and it's if you look at a map of it, you'll see that there are a cannon with ranges of fire all all around the area where the ships would be coming past. Uh, If you look at it, if you're standing there physically looking at it, you will see a gorgeous view of the inlet into Charleston Harbor, and then, you know, you can understand how this fort would have been uh, appropriate. So Moultrie, he's got a background in uh, the military. He's served in the militia. Uh, He's now a colonel in the militia, and he has been working his way up. Uh, He's learned his lessons along the line, and he realizes as he's looking at what's going on look the the political leaders, the governor Rutledge, he wants to move the, you know, the place that they're going to defend much closer to the city. Well, then the, the ships can just, you know, park there and just just stay at a little distance and be a threat and continue to be a threat. Moultrie's different. He thinks he wants to keep them out and he wants to stay at that point and defend that point. And to that end, he's arming the place. Now he's arming it. the The fort's not quite ready yet, but he's been working at it. He's, you know, doing his due diligence. And the commander of the Southern forces his name is Charles Lee. Charles Lee and Moultrie are on very different pages personally and professionally. Charles Lee is a former British officer. He's a Martinet. He's really not a fun guy, but he's, you know, disciplined, marshaled. Uh, he, he's, you know, a, a command and control kind of leader. He thinks that Moultrie's kind of lacks. He's, he's not impressed with Moultrie's discipline. Um, but He's thinking and it's now this is June 27th of um, 1776, where uh, General Charles Lee is thinking, I'm going to replace Moultrie tomorrow. Okay, so I have already have a guy in mind. I'm going to replace him. I want to make sure that this is, you know, he's doing what he's supposed to be doing, following my orders, etc. So that was June 27th. And again, this is where that palmetto tree comes into play. Okay. Now the palmetto tree, I talked about it a little bit before. If you look at um, the schematics, and I got this out of a, a book called Crescent Moon Over South Carolina. And again, there's a debate whether the the gor- gorget is a crescent moon or gorget or what it is on the flag, but. Um, If you look in there, there are some schematics of the fort and you'll see that the fort is made out of wood, which is not a great fort if you're going to be cannonaded and you want something stronger, but that's what they had. Okay. So it's made out of wood, but it's made out of the palmetto tree. Okay. And then after the wood, you'll see that there's like layers of sand and then more wood. And so the palmetto logs are like the first line of the fence and lots of sand and then more palmetto logs. Okay. Okay. So at any rate that's going to play in and be important in just a little bit and I'll explain why. Okay, so they're at the mouth of the harbor again and uh now Let's talk about the other side. Commodore Peter Parker. I'm not talking about Spider-Man. Peter Parker, he's the Commodore in charge of the British fleet here in the South. He's got 10 ships. I think he has only nine as he's attacking uh, Fort Sullivan. But he's not. Now, think about this. The British have not lost a naval battle in like 100 years. So he's. He's going to come into Charleston like a fifth grader into kindergarten recess and just clean up. He knows he's going to. He's going to take away their kickball and run roughshod all over him. Okay, that's Commodore Peter Parker's mindset. So he sees this fort and he probably actually could have sailed around it and, you know, taken minimum casualties and gone right into Charleston. But. they're the british (laughs) they see this threat of these upstart colonials that don't know their place and he's going to stay there and you know destroy the fort that's his what's in his mind colonel moultrie is not so sure that he's able to do that because he he knows what he has in the fort and it's not a lot but he has a certain advantage of being a fixed fortification as opposed to the ships like he can't dodge or maneuver, but he also has a lot of protection. So at any rate, here's here's the uh, the card. OK, so in this corner is the American forces and uh, 25 cannon, which isn't a lot. 435 men. Thirty six of those men are sick. And about 5,000 pounds of powder, which is not a lot. They're almost going to run out. In fact, he had to send for more powder during the engagement, um, which is probably not a good feeling. He had to slow down his you know, the rate of fire during the engagement because they were almost running out of gunpowder. In the opposite quarter was the British. And the British had nine warships. They had 270 cannon. Now that's crazy. 25 to 270. Now they couldn't fire all 270 at the same time because they're on both sides of the ships, but they could have theoretically turned the ship around and fired the, uh, the you know the uh, from the other side. So uh, about 135 cannon that they could bring to bear at any given time against 25. They also had 5,000 soldiers ready to attack, and they were trying to at- attack Charlestown by landing them farther up the island. And, and it's a fascinating story. They couldn't get across a little creek. Like the the tide would come in and out. And when a tide came as, as low as possible, they would try to cross, but there was a very small force that could, you know, as they're trying to wade across, could pick them off. Um and so they couldn't actually get across. They, you know, it wasn't two feet deep. It was maybe nine feet deep. And wading across just what wasn't going to work. But they they vastly outnumbered the colonial forces. Okay, so it's the morning of June twenty eighth, seventeen seventy six. Charles Lee is about to relieve uh, Colonel Moultrie because he thinks he's lacked. But what happens is a very different day. Uh, So the British actually sail into Charleston Harbor, or they're intending to sail into Charleston Harbor. They decide that they're going to engage Fort Sullivan, and so there's nine ships. They all turn to the side so they can, you know, they line up in rows, they turn to the side, very disciplined, very orderly, and they start bombarding the, the fort and the fort starts punching back. Now the fort's punching above its weight. Okay, it 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 has uh, a certain advantage here, and, but they're they're still outnumbered, and I mean I would imagine there's chaos within the fort. Um, there are a number of paintings about the attack of Fort Sullivan on June twenty eighth, and they, none of them look uh, very impressive or like you something that, where you'd want to be. But nonetheless, they held, and here here were the results. The results were this: Fort Sullivan used. 4766 pounds of its powder. That's almost all of it. They fired 960 times. They struck the British hulls 70 times. They only incurred within the fort 37 casualties, 17 were killed and 20 wounded. And some of those that were were killed, it wasn't killed immediately. It was like 12 killed immediately and five that succumbed to death over time. So that was that's, that's not too shabby for the fort that was so heavily outnumbered. Five to one out, you know, you're outnumbered five to one. It shouldn't be like this. The British, they had nine warships. They used 34,000 pounds of powder, Okay, almost 10 times, nine, eight, eight, nine times the amount of powder. They fired 12,000 shots, Okay, as opposed to 960 times they had on their ships. Two hundred and five casualties, as opposed to thirty-seven casualties, and they lost one ship. Now, <laughs> that that's pretty impressive. Okay, so anytime that you know you don't see the evenness, <laughs> I mean, if they're if the the contestants are, are evenly matched and you don't see evenness, now they were already outmatched. the The, the Patriots, the Americans, were already out, out outmatched, but they gave it to them. They were outmatched about five to one, and they gave it to them about five to one in reverse. I mean, that's, that's really the essence of it. So what is going on? Okay, so the British, they turn their tail and they leave. And they don't come back to Charleston Harbor and attack this way throughout the rest of the Revolution. Now, May twelfth of seventeen eighty, they will take Charleston. Okay, so just under four years later, they take Charleston because they come overland. They go down south and they land there, and then they march up, and that's how they siege Charleston. But not on this day. On this day, on June twenty eighth, seventeen seventy six, Colonel Moultrie is going to hold Fort Sullivan. Now, that's impressive that, I mean, it was a great battle. It was a big to-do. He held with an inferior force to a superior force, arguably the best navy in the world at the time. So that's all impressive. But here's the moral of the story. The date was June 28th, 1776. Now, that's what's going on in Charleston, South Carolina. But let me tell you a different story. In Philadelphia, on June 28th, 1776, they are reading, reading to the rest of the Continental Congress, the Declaration of Independence for the first time. They haven't voted on it yet. They're going to vote on it within a week. So by June, uh, July 2nd, we know the day is July 4th that we celebrate, but by July 2nd, they're going to be voting on the Declaration of Independence. How different might the Revolutionary War have been if, before the Declaration of Independence, the the British, who were already in Boston, the British had bagged South Carolina, Charleston, the capital was Charleston, and knocked that uh, that state out of the war. I mean, it could have turned the tide of the entire war theoretically if this had happened. But Moultrie held and Moultrie held because he made the decision to hold and he made the decision to hold because he recognized the strategic importance and advantage of that place. Now, one of the reasons that he held, and I keep talking about this, was the palmetto tree. Now, he used the palmetto tree for the uh, the wood in the fort. So, remember, the fort had this like this barrier of, of palmetto tree, and then sand, and then more palmetto tree. It's like six feet of sand. So, w- what happened? The British would fire on the fort, and the palmetto tree is not like an oak. Like when the when they fired into the palmetto tree, instead of splintering, the palmetto tree was like kind of Uh, Like palm tree, it's like kind of moist and and flexible and it kind of absorbed the cannon shot instead of splintering and getting blown to bits as opposed to when in the fort, they fired out at the British ships made of hard oak, it would put a, punch a hole in it or have splinters. In fact, a lot of people died from splinter wounds. I mean, that's hard to imagine, but the splinters would turn into these large shards that would go everywhere and hit people. And so, so that's what was going on. Now, I don't know that they knew that that the palmetto tree would have that kind of property, but that that's what they did. They used the palmetto tree. And it reminded me of the, this book, the three success secrets of Shamgar by Pat Williams and Jay Strack, where the three principles were, look, start where you are, use what you have and do what you can. And that's exactly what, what what Colonel Moultrie did. He started with where he was. He used what he had, which was palmettos and he did what he can and he held the line. And by doing that, he may have saved the revolution. And, and I'm not saying that in a, you know, uh, over the top way. Seriously, he may have saved the revolution. Imagine the blow to morale if before they could get the the uh, Declaration of Independence, even to a vote. South Carolina was already knocked out of the war. Later, it almost came to that. Two years later, now remember, Charleston is going to be um, uh, taken four years later. Two years later, they were so close to 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 being uh, overrun that General Moultrie is there trying to defend the city and the governor, Rutledge, uh, almost uh, he, he was an hour away from signing a document to turn the uh, turn Charleston over to the British. And if he had done that, what part of that document would have included was that South Carolina would now be a neutral party in the Revolutionary War. What happened was that Benjamin Lincoln was on his way back from Georgia. He was fighting some skirmishes in Georgia and he had sent a courier and the courier said, hold fast. We're on our way. And he had, I don't know, 5,000, 10,000 troops, whatever it was. We're on our way. The courier fell into British hands and they knew, oh, this other army is coming. And so the British left within hours before South Carolina was almost knocked out of the war. So think about this. This was seriously, they could have been out of the war. Okay. So again, the point was this, the leadership lesson is this choices matter. The choices that you make are moving you forward toward your goal or away from your goal. And you have to be thinking about the choices that you make. Look, I mean, if you want to lose weight, your choices matter. Don't think about everything that you eat. And you're going to move toward that goal or away from that goal. And that and that leads me to the quotation for contemplation for today. It comes from Neil Borg. Neil Borg said, the key to accepting responsibility for your life is to accept the fact that your choices, every one of them, are leading you inexorably either to success or failure, however you define those terms. Wow. I mean, that's, that's exactly right. So if you want to improve in anything or stop doing something or become more of X, Y, or Z, you you have to, every single choice you make moves you that direction. And then you have to have the internal fortitude to, even when the pressure comes, hold the line and stay at that task or whatever it is that you're doing, not be dissuaded from it and keep moving toward it. And you'll eventually hit that success. Hey, I want to thank you for listening to this show today. I, w- I hope that that helps you understand how the importance of choices and it gives you some context too with uh, General Moultrie and his experience and, and gives you some background. I hope it also whets your appetite to learn more about great leaders and what they have done over time. Now, again, these great leaders, I say this in, a, in an environment where everybody is going to say, oh, well, this guy was this and a racist and what, yeah, General Moultrie owned slaves. He did. Um, That was a time period in which he existed. So I'm not saying he's perfect, but I'm saying you can still learn a lesson about doing the right thing through the lives of imperfect men like you and me. Hey, listen, thank you for listening again. I hope this helps you become the kind of leader that you would want to follow.